if you have your Bibles with you, would you turn them to Matthew chapter 17? Matthew chapter 17. And as you're turning there, I just want to say it's a blessing to be back here. I was a student here from 2003 to 2008, so it feels like a long time ago that I drove onto this hill for the very first time, and it is just enriching for my soul to be back with you. And I got here just last night, and we took a tour around campus with my wife, who's here with us, Karen. And so she got to see Ozark for her very first time. She's heard thousands of stories, and she was weeping as she went around campus. I'm just kidding. She, she wasn't, but she was inspired. <laughs> so, you know, as I was driving around, a lot of things have not changed. But I'm kind of spending time here this morning and realizing there are some things that have changed since I was here last. Uh, for example, I am seeing that you guys have to go to class five days a week now. We didn't have to do that. It was just four days a week. How many of you guys like that change? That's a pretty good change, right? Yeah, well done, administration. Uh, you know, when I was here, we had chapel twice a week. But you guys have an incredible privilege of having chapel one day a week and being in a professor-led small group for another day. I mean, that's just incredible discipleship and deep relationships happening. I love that. So a lot of, a lot, you know, a lot of things have changed. When I was here, um, Shane Wood still had short hair. Think about that. A long time ago. When I was here, Michael DeFazio's left eyebrow had not turned white yet. That happened in California. I don't know what he was doing in California, but that happened out there. When I was here, Doug Welch and Chad Ragsdale had only taken some thoughts captive. A long time ago. And speaking speaking of Doug, when I was here, he was more thoroughly single than he is today. So, Doug, I see you back there. Some changes are great, and we praise God for them. It's good to be back. We got this new series, and today the title I've been given is Let God Renew Your Thinking. Let God Renew Your Thinking. So I've just been doing some praying, some brainstorming, even talking to some Ozark students who are presently at the creek, the church I have the privilege of serving, saying, what what do we need to, to do? What do we need to be reflecting on as we give attention to God renewing our thinking? And what I've been coming back to again and again and again is how important it is that we pay attention to what we're paying attention to. We have to pay attention what we're paying attention to. I was reflecting about my friend Brent White. I brought a picture of him here. This is a real story from a real person. Brent is a bright guy. He's an engineer. He works for Procter & Gamble. He's rather successful in the world. He was telling me what it was like when he was getting his master's degree. He was up in Michigan doing an internship, and he was doing a three-month internship. He said the first two months were really, uh, really stale, very boring, and he said, I was studying all the time and doing work all the time. I didn't make any friends. And he said, I had a, a guy who I was just getting to know invite me to a house party. He said, I went there and I was finally getting to know some people. And at this house party, I look across the room and I see this woman who is just breathtakingly beautiful. And he said, look, I got nothing to lose. I don't really know anyone here. I'm going to go up and ask this beautiful woman if she'll go on a date with me. He summoned the courage. He went and he asked her on a date. And to his surprise, she said yes. She thought, this is a beautiful woman. I've got to make the most of this opportunity. So he decides that as he plans the date, they're going to go to a nice steak restaurant in Detroit. And Detroit, you got there through about a 45-minute train ride. So they get on the train on this, you know, this date night, and they go to have a, a nice steak. And as they're walking back to the train, they realize they got about an hour or so between you know, the time of you know, where they were at and when it was supposed to take off. So they start walking around an outdoor mall. And they walk into a gap. And she gets a phone call. And so she, you know, takes it. And as she's walked away from him for just a moment for the call, he starts sensing all this pressure that's built up from the uh, undercooked meat. So he thinks, okay, I've got to release this pressure. He, st- he takes another step away from his date, 
And he says, I made a mistake because I, I release more than just the pressure. And he's telling me this and he said, Dan, it was, it was not good because I was wearing khakis. So he said, but by the Lord's provision, I was in a clothing store. So he says, I quickly grab a pair of pants and a sweater and I, I, I you know, show them to my date to see if she approves. And she gives me a thumbs up. She's still on the phone. So I quickly go to the register and I said, look, I just want the pants. I don't need the sweater. Makes the purchase, puts it in the bag, and then they get on the way to the train. He makes sure to stay at least one half step behind her the whole way so she can't see. They get on the train. They're getting ready to sit down. He can begin to you know, tell what's happened. So before the, the train starts going, he takes his bag. He goes to the bathroom. The train starts moving when he's in the bathroom. He takes off his, his clothes. He realizes it's unredeemable. So he throws his underwear and his pants out of the, the moving train now. And he goes to his bag, and there's only the sweater. Don't worry, he, he's got a beautiful wife, okay? But it is really important that we pay attention to what we're paying attention to. And we take in so much information all throughout the day that our brains actually have a hard time determining and deciding what we need to remember and what we can forget. You remember this just a handful of weeks ago when you came on campus and there's, this was either your first time on campus and you're a freshman or you're back here for your sophomore, your junior, senior year, and you're meeting hundreds of new people. Within four seconds of meeting a new person, you have forgotten their name, right? Unless they're attractive. And then your brain registered, this person could be my spouse one day. And you decided to remember that name. It was worth paying attention to. And so you remembered it. We've taken so much information sometimes that we don't really let it sink in. We just jet ski and skim across the surface as opposed to scuba diving down to its depths like we could. Sometimes the problem is we're not paying enough attention. Other times the, the issue might be that we're paying attention, plenty of attention, to the wrong things. Like, for example, how many of us could uh, rattle off the top ten pranks that Jim played on Dwight? Or tell you how much bacon Ron Swanson can eat in a single setting? Or you might know the best strategy to, to get another W in Fortnite. Or you might know the best filter to use on Instagram and the best time of the day to post it so that you get the most possible likes. Now, we know how to pay attention to some things. But are they, are they the right things? Are they the things that are allowing God to renew our thinking and in so doing to actually make us new? It's so, so important that we pay attention to the right things. And we could go to the scriptures they're replete with admonitions. You probably know these. Uh, a scripture in Hebrews that says we must pay the most careful attention to what we have heard. We know the scriptures say we are to set our minds on things above, not on earthly things. We read earlier today that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We could also think about we, the thought in, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10 to take every thought captive in our minds, to have the mindset of Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, or 1 Corinthians chapter 2, to have the mind of Christ. Can we all just understand that the scriptures make it pretty clear what happens in here matters? It matters a lot. 
And I believe that as you look at the scriptures, and as you look around at life, and I can at least speak from 10 or 15 years of pastoral experience, that it is what we pay attention to that shapes who we become. It is what we give sustained, focused attention to that forms us. And that, to to a great extent, determines our future. So if that's true, if it's true that what we give sustained, focused attention to forms us and shapes our future, then what is it that we should give sustained, focused attention to? How can we recognize that truth, walk in step with that truth, so that God can renew us and remake us? I believe from what we see theologically, what we see biblically, what we see practically and pastorally, the absolute best thing that we can take our attention and place it on in a focused and sustained way is Jesus. That we would take all of our attention and all of our focus and then behold his beauty. All of our attention and all of our focus and contemplate his character. All of our attention and all of our focus and be immersed in his immensity, marvel at his majesty. And in Matthew 17, that's what a couple of these disciples get to do. It's pretty sweet. Let's take a look together. Matthew 17, verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his inner three, and he led them up a mountain by themselves. Now, you might be probably aware that there's quite a bit of debate over which mountain this happens to be. And if you go to Mark Scott after uh, this, this chapel, he'll tell you the seven most likely mountains and the pros and cons, every single one of them. But the most important thing is not which mountain this happened on, but what happened on this mountain. There he was transfigured before them. And this word transfigured is metamorpho, a word you probably familiar with from metamorphosis, describing in our vernacular uh, the transformation of a, a caterpillar to a butterfly. The exact same entity, the same DNA, but now in a strikingly different form than before. And to an extent, that is what has happened to Jesus. This is the exact same person the disciples have known for a few years, but now they're looking at him. And they're realizing, this man is far more than we thought. Far greater than we understood. The parameters and the borders that they had were just shattered and moved to the edges of eternity. We've always known that he was fully human. Is it possible that he's also fully God? At the exact same time? We've always known him as the carpenter turned rabbi from the humble hills of Galilee. Might he also be the exalted son of God from all eternity? Something is happening there as they take their focused, sustained attention and place it on Jesus. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. Jesus' splendor, it's being manifest in similar ways to other theophanies throughout the Old Testament. Verse 3 says, Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. And you might be familiar with all the different reasons postulated as to why it's Moses and Elijah who show up here. 
Maybe, for example, in Exodus chapter 33 and 1 Kings chapter 19, each of these men had beheld the glory revealed from the Lord on a mountain. So maybe there's a connection here. Moses and Elijah, they represent the law and the prophets. Moses and Elijah, they both had very unique departures from the world after passing on their ministry to those who would come after them. All sorts of different reasons that have been, you know, suggested as to why it's Moses and Elijah. I think there might be a a different reason that doesn't get quite as much attention. Think about what it would be like to be an Israelite in first century Israel. And you want to honor God. You want to walk in step with his will. You want to know what it means to be a true, faithful Israelite. To whom would you look to find the answer to those important questions? Moses and Elijah. You would look to them to tell you what to do. You would look to them to tell you who God is. You would look to them to tell you what it means to be a part of his kingdom and the role that you play in that kingdom. And it's almost as though Moses and Elijah show up to to make it clear to all that they are giving way and their authority is giving way to Jesus. From this point on, if you want to know who God is, From this point on, if you want to know what it means to walk in step with his will, from this point on, if you want to know what his kingdom is about and the role you play in it, it's no longer just a Moses Moses or Elijah you look to. Now you take all of your attention and all of your focus, and in a sustained way, you place it on Jesus. We can see in verse 4 that Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. And, And if you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them. And there's all sorts of other times throughout the scriptures when a cloud comes down. We think about the cloud coming down on Sinai when the Israelites were there to establish a covenant with God and receive the Ten Commandments. We think about the cloud coming down to lead them through the wilderness and provide direction. We think about the cloud coming down when the the faithful worshipped at the tabernacle. We think about the cloud coming down when the temple was consecrated. When the cloud comes down, it's not just saying that God is near. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. The cloud is coming down saying that God is here and it is unmistakable. God is here and he wants it to be palpable. He doesn't want there to be a single doubt in anyone's mind that his presence is pronounced in this place. The cloud is there. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And as the Father speaks these words over Jesus, declares these words over Jesus, maybe even sings these words over Jesus, the disciples are being invited into the deepest reality of the universe. This is ultimate reality. The love that the Father shares with the Son. The inner workings of the triune Godhead. And the disciples are getting to, getting to touch it. They're getting a glimpse into heaven. They're touching eternity. This is a, a distinctive of the Christian worldview and our understanding of the universe and how things work in the universe. If you were to take a non-Christian worldview, you take a, um, a naturalistic paradigm for life and all that exists, 
you would follow uh, secular scientists and you would say, hey, it seems as though the best mathematics we can do, looking at the Hubble Space Telescope and all these other things, the universe is probably, you know, 14 and a half billion years old. And if you go back those 14 and a half billion years ago, you get to this place where we don't know how they got there, but somehow or another, gas and dust and water got there. And somehow or another, they coalesced in just a particular way to create an explosion. From that explosion, we have all that we have today. Just give it enough time, and this is what results. Now, if you take that paradigm and that framework, that means, ultimately, you follow it to its logical conclusion that chaos produced order, that randomness produced fine-tuning, that non-life produced life, that unconsciousness produced consciousness, that non-reason produced reason, and you continue to follow that train of thought to its logical conclusion, that means that there was a time when beauty did not exist, when relationships did not exist, when love did not exist. You take that conclusion, you follow it to its logical logical determination. It tells you that all the things that everyone across the universe says matters most in life. Relationships and beauty and love. These things that we say have intrinsic value. These things that we will spend all that we have and all that we are in pursuit of. They actually don't matter at all, fundamentally. They're just dependent. They're derivative. They're illusory in the truest sense of the word. Because ultimately we're just material, unguided. Nothing actually sustaining those things that we believe have value. So that's a naturalistic paradigm for the universe. Christianity gives a strikingly different answer. Christianity says, foundational to the universe, fundamental to all that we see and all that is out there that we cannot see, is not just matter. Foundational and fundamental is beauty. Foundational and fundamental is relationship. Foundational and fundamental is love. Because for all of time, there wasn't just gas and dust and water. There was Father, Son, and Spirit. Loving, interacting, intimacy. And it was the overflow of that eternal, divine, perfect life. Community in its fullest. That there was this deep desire from the overflow of that love to expand the confines of that relationship and invite others in to it. And, you know, we, we, we understand that and we experience that in marriage. I went through Ozark five years, did not marry while I was here, went to Lexington, Kentucky, where I served a church for nine years. And after a handful of those years, I, I met this woman named Karen. And after pursuing her for four years, she finally... Uh, let down her guard and allowed me to ask her to be my wife. We married on May 29th, 2015, and marriage has been so sweet and so wonderful. It's one of the greatest gifts God could ever give. And uh, our first year was just so special. It was so joy-filled. And after about a year of marriage, we're just in the kitchen, and uh, Karen was cleaning dishes and making me delicious food. It was wonderful. And I just saw her, and I was just filled with this joy and this rapturous delight. And I just went and grabbed her and pulled her in tight to me. And I held on to her for like, I don't know, 45 seconds or a minute. And I wasn't even trying to be overly romantic here. I just, I just said, don't you want to bring kids into this? 
It's like what we had was so good and so wonderful and so close and so sweet and so deep. The natural longing was to expand the confines of this and see others in our image be able to be brought into this. And if my wife were to stand up today, you would see she's seven and a half months pregnant. So we took action on that thought. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Participating in the Imago Day is wonderful. It's wonderful. And I'm not trying to be crass. I'm not. The Bible says that this is about that. This was given to teach us about him. It's all about foundational, fundamental reality. And Christianity teaches that it's the overflow of that intimacy, the overflow of that relationship, the overflow of that love that is the sustaining force of the universe. Not just the genesis to it, but the force that's sustaining, sustaining it presently, today. And there, on that mountain, in that moment, the disciples touched it. They heard it. They saw it. They were invited into something when looking at Jesus that was far grander than anything they had imagined before. And I believe that to one extent or another, Jesus wants to invite all of his disciples to have an experience like that. Where they get to spend sustained time with him. They get to take all of their focus and place it squarely upon him. And in so doing, they get to touch eternity. In so doing, they get to behold his beauty and marvel at his majesty. They get to contemplate his character and be immersed in his immensity. And as we do that, as we take him up on that ever so gracious invitation, that is how we allow God to renew our thinking. And that is what happens at Ozark. That is what this is about. And that's not just a good word for the hundreds of students. That's a really good word for all of our guests who are here checking out what the school is about. That is what the school is about. Be it a semester, or a year, or two years, or four years, or five years. That your time here, on this hill, and I hope it is a holy hill, is all about you giving sustained, focused attention to Jesus. And allowing him to renew your thinking so that he can renew you. And that's why what happens here is so intense. That's why what happens here is so challenging. I was talking to one of the students who is from the church that I serve, who is uh, here and, you know, a part of Ozark. And we had dinner last night with other staff members. And I asked him how he was doing, and he said, I am exhausted. Anyone else feel that way? You just got back from break, and you are exhausted. It's because the training here is intense. Jesus-centric training, to an extent, must be intense. What happens here matters so much that we have to give unparalleled unparalleled amounts of resources and energy toward it. 
You guys are probably familiar with the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I'm guessing. I tried to find a picture of Bonhoeffer, and sadly, the only one I could find has him participating in some non-Ozark-approved behavior. <laughs> Monty, I don't know who you talked to about that, but... Um, you know that he was a pastor in Germany during the Third Reich, as it was gaining all sorts of power and influence. You probably know that through the, the, the German influence, they went to the, the church in that country and began to remove... Uh, Jewish people, both from places of positional leadership as well as from the pews, and they put them in their own ghetto, which would have ultimately turned into the Auschwitz. And what was Bonhoeffer to do? He said, I don't want to create a new church. I'm just believing that, that this church is no longer the church. So there's going to be a confessing church. And if we're going to have a faithful church that has the power and the strength to stand up to the Third Reich, then we have to have some leaders who are trained. And so he goes to this small little forgotten town called Finkenwald. And he invites a couple dozen other people to go and spend time with him at Finkenwald to be trained and prepared and equipped to lead the church that would be strong enough to stand up to Nazi Germany. And they started spending a lot of time together reading the scriptures, a lot of time together in prayer, a lot of time together memorizing the life and the teachings of Jesus. And then they put a little bit of a, of a manual together. And the manual was, was circulated throughout Germany. And that manual is called Life Together. One of his old colleagues came across that manual and was uh, interested in it, but a bit disturbed by it. So he went to visit Bonhoeffer at Finkenwald. And after seeing what they were doing there, he was all the more disturbed. And so he went to Dietrich and he said, look, I appreciate the heart. I, I appreciate the desire. But dude, you've got to dial it back a little bit. This is too intense. This is not realistic. And what Dietrich did was invite his buddy to go on a trip with him. And they walked a few miles and they got into a canoe that was next to a lake and they canoed across that lake. They hit the other end of the shore and they hiked up a tall hill. And when they got to the top of the hill, they could see Nazi soldiers in training. They just stood there for 30 minutes and they watched as planes took off and planes landed. They looked at infantry men doing their drills, preparing for war. And Dietrich looked at his buddy and he said, This, pointing to Finkenwald, this must be stronger than that. What happens here must be stronger than what happens there. And when I think about Finkenwald, I think about Ozark. This must be stronger than that. What happens here must be stronger than what happens out there. Because there is a war. Souls hang in the balance. God's glory and eternity is on the line. This must be stronger than that. I remember finishing my time at Ozark and moving to Lexington. I, I loved that town. Loved the church I got to serve. And that church was a friend named Rob who had ultimately become one of my best friends. We'd spent a lot of time together, running together. Rob owns a couple restaurants. And so whenever we would go out to lunch, 
he'd go to a restaurant he didn't own. He'd order eight, nine, or ten different entrees just for the two of us. And he said, Dan, we're doing research. It was research. It was, you know, tax exempt. So it was wonderful. And we just stay there for two or three hours and we talk about the deep things of life. He came to Bible studies. He came to accountability groups. He came to prayer meetings. And Rob is a genius. I mean, he really is. He's always thinking two or three steps ahead of everyone else in the room. I don't know if you saw this, but in July, the New York Times actually ran an article about Rob. Uh, later on, NBC Nightly News did an article or did a, a showcase that, I mean, put him and what he's doing for the Lord in front of millions of people across our country. One time, Rob and I were driving back from lunch. We're sitting in his Ford Explorer. We're sitting at a, at a stop site, at a stoplight. And he leans over to me and he said, you know, for a long time, I've been meaning to say thank you. I said, okay, for what? And he said, I've been meaning to tell you, thank you for studying so hard at Ozark. And it just kind of hit me unexpected. And he went on, he said, thank you for learning how to read the Bible. Thank you for taking hours upon hours and memorizing the Bible. Thank you for learning Greek. And he thanked me for other random things about the school that I told him about over the years. And he said, because you trained so hard there, when you graduated from there, you were able to move here and tell me and Di and Sam and Calvin about Jesus. And it's changed our lives. What happens here matters. Because it's in this place that we let God renew our thinking. And it's by renewing our thinking that God renews our nature. So that when we leave this place, we're prepared and equipped to not just tell people about Jesus, but show people Jesus. You know, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says, We all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. That's what this place is all about. We take our focus and sustained attention And we place it squarely upon Jesus. We behold his beauty. We marvel at his majesty. We contemplate his character. We are immersed in his immensity. And as we contemplate his glory, we are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. What happens here must be stronger than what happens out there. Coming back on campus, it's, it's clear that a lot of things have changed. And a lot of things are different. It's so good for my heart to see there's a lot of things that have not changed. And there are some things in this place that will never be different. Let me pray. God, thank you for your love for us and this invitation to behold Jesus in all of his splendor. And I want to pray over uh, the faculty and staff and students that they would embrace that invitation that you have given to enter into eternity and touch things that are beyond the confines of this galaxy by looking at Christ. And we would do it in a focused, sustained way. We would pay attention to who we're paying attention to. And that in so doing, we'd be shaped into his image and his likeness. God, we want to be like you. We bless you, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen.